Well, morning, church. My name's John. I serve here as the executive pastor. It's a joy, privilege to be with you this morning. We're going to continue in our teaching series called Together for the Gospel. We're going to be in the book of Acts. Again, this morning, Acts chapter 13. If you want to turn there in your copy of the scriptures, I'll be uh, starting in verse 13 this morning. Or flip there on your phone or turn there on your iPad, whatever it is that you use to read the scriptures. You can go ahead and, and get there this morning. Last week, in our introductory message, we saw that the church in Antioch, the church in Antioch sent out two of their finest leaders. They sent out two of their pastors, Paul and Barnabas. They sent them off on mission to go and share the good news about Jesus in the island of Cyprus and then parts unknown. These men were going to be uh, carrying out the message Uh, going out and sharing Christ with any and all that they could interact with. We see the church in Antioch in this introductory part of uh, chapter 13. We see that they, they were told by the Holy Spirit to send these two men out, and then they did something really powerful and somewhat unique. They laid hands on them and sent them out with the Holy Spirit. The next verse says, and they went with the Holy Spirit. And we see in this laying on of hands and this sending out, we see this togetherness in the gospel. It's symbolic, this laying on of hands in the Holy Spirit, sending them out with the Holy Spirit. We see this this message that we are together. Paul and Barnabas, as you go, although we don't go with you personally or with you physically, we are going with you spiritually. We are in the Spirit with you as you go. There's this togetherness. And in that togetherness, in the sending out of their two finest pastors, two of their finest leaders, we see that what was primary for the church in Antioch, what was primary was the mission of God to share the good news of Jesus with the world. In this, we see that the church in Antioch, they weren't hoarding their leaders. They weren't just simply trying to build a bigger and better and more influential and more attractive church in Antioch. The mission of God to go out and to share the gospel and share the good news, that was what was primary for the church in Antioch, we see that they were not simply an organization trying to be a better organization in Antioch, but we see in this that the church is actually an organism. It's moving and growing and living and breathing. And there's people that are sent to go and to grow and to expand. And they do that together. So Paul and Barnabas, they go off with the Holy Spirit to the island of Cyprus, and that's where we pick up the story this morning. We're in verse 13. Luke, the author of Acts, tells us, From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. There's a map on the screen Behind me, you can see the journey that these folks took. They went from Antioch and Syria. They went down to Cyprus. Cyprus. They went to Paphos, and then they made their way across 
the Mediterranean to what is modern-day Turkey, to Perga. As they were going, one of their companions, Luke tells us that there were companions with Paul and Barnabas. These were likely young men who were serving as uh, attendants to Paul and Barnabas. One of them is, is John, also known as Mark. The New Testament, we see that often, right? People go by two names. Saul goes by Paul. Well, here John is also known as Mark. So John Mark leaves them. He leaves the group and he heads to Jer- back to Jerusalem. He leaves and not much is made of his departure at this moment, but I raise it so that you put it in your mind that when we read Acts 13, when we, we move ahead in the series, you'll remember this moment because it's about to become really significant that John Mark left them. It's going to have an impact on Paul and Barnabas in their relationship. So John Mark leaves them. The rest of the crew continues on. In Perga, they were at sea level. Pisidian Antioch is at 3,600 feet and about 100 miles away. So these men journey together, climbing up the 100-mile stretch to get to Pisidian Antioch. Historians tell us that back then the the road there was not great. There was lots of river crossings. It was a rugged, mountainous terrain. The area was known to be covered with thieves and robbers who would attack or hijack people on the road, take their goods, or even enslave them personally. And I raise that this morning to say that often when we go on mission, when we're called to a place or to a person or to a people, that often that journey is not easy. There's often struggle. There's physical struggle. There may be emotional struggle or relational struggle when God calls us to something. When we are on mission for him, it's not always easy. We can ask ourselves, why go up to Pisidian Antioch? It seems a little bit like trouble. The historians tell us that Pisidian Antioch was actually a a major hub, a central city in that area. One historian uh, talks about it being a nerve center for communication and goods. And so there's some wisdom in Paul and Barnabas making their way to Pisidian Antioch. If they want their message to go out, their message to spread, this would be a, a great place to preach and to share the good news about Jesus because it could spread wide and far throughout the region. All right, let's keep going in the text. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and they sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and all you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. So we're seeing, this is the second time that we're seeing Paul. We're getting a a sense of his MO, right? When he goes into a new area, when he goes into a new city, he goes to the synagogue. He goes to where the Jewish people are. Paul is a Jew. He's an Israelite. He's a Pharisee. And he goes first to the, the synagogue where the Jewish people are. And we can ask why. Why does Paul do that? Paul says in Romans 1 verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power 
of God for salvation to the Jew first and also the Gentile. Jesus, when he speaks about Paul in Acts 9, during Paul's, uh, the transformation of Paul, when he, when he comes to see Jesus and begin to follow Jesus, Jesus says, This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. Paul does not forsake the Jews. Paul does not forget the Jews. In fact, Paul in his effort to reach the Gentiles, he still honors what God has called him to and what God has said. That, that salvation has come from the Jews and for the Jews first, and then also to the Gentiles. So Paul goes into the synagogue, and then the, he hears the word of the law read, and he hears the prophets read. Then they ask him, hey, do you have a word to share? You've come a long way. You're a Jew like us. What exhortation do you have for the people? And Paul stands up and he delivers what is the first recorded sermon for the Apostle Paul. In verse 17, we'll pick it up there. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country for about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness. And he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All of this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. When the people asked for a king, then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. And God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus. John preached repentance and baptism, uh, the Savior Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I am not the one who you are looking for. The Jews were looking for the Messiah, waiting for the Messiah. These people in Pisidian Antioch, in the synagogue, were waiting. They were waiting for the Messiah to come. And Paul tells them, John says, I am not him. I'm not the one you are looking for. But there is one who is coming whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Paul goes on to say, fellow children of Abraham. He's making a connection with these people. And you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us this message of salvation has been sent. The Messiah comes from, it's sent to the people of Israel, the Hebrew people. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet, in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. The words that were just read. The words that were just read in the synagogue were prophesying about Christ. Though they found no proper ground for death sentence, for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, 
All the prophecies fulfilled. They took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. I tell you the good news. When God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus. He's telling them this is the fulfillment. This is what you've been waiting for. Jesus. Jesus has been raised. He says, as it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son. Today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. It is also stated elsewhere in the book of Isaiah, you will not let your holy one see decay. Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Paul delivers this brilliant sermon. This brilliant sermon to the Jews and to the God-fearing Gentiles in Pisidian Antioch. He starts with a connection point. He connects with them, right? He starts with Exodus. This Exodus from, the, from Egypt. And then he works his way through Israel's history. And he gets to David. And he says, Christ has come through David just as it was promised to him. Paul's sermon, Paul's sermon here is the gospel. This is the gospel. Paul says this is good news. It's the same good news that we proclaim today. Thousands of years ago in Pisidian Antioch and today here in this church, this is it. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is what we believe. That Christ has come. All the promises are fulfilled. The Messiah has come and he died for us taking on all of our sin, and that he didn't stay there. He was raised from the dead, and he conquered sin and death, and all forgiveness and all freedom is found in him. Church, we can connect to those believers, those folks way back in, a, in Turkey, modern-day Turkey, up on a mountainside. Hearing this from Paul, it's the same good news that we believe today. This is the gospel. Christ crucified, dead, and buried. Christ raised from the dead, conquering sin and death. Forgiveness of sin and a new life is available for us today, just like it was then. Paul is saying, believe in him. Believe in him and be free. Believe in him and be free. Forgiveness is available through Christ Jesus. You can be truly set free from the guilt and the shame and the sin that you're entangled in because of Jesus. He rescues us and he frees us. 
and he forgives us. Isn't that powerful? That's what he's come to do. That's who God sent through the nation of Israel for us. All right, let's continue. Acts 13, verse 40 through 41. Paul gives this warning. He gives this warning to the synagogue, specifically to the Jewish leaders that are there. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers. Wander and perish. For I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. So Paul's giving a warning. He's giving a warning to the the people there, to the Jewish people there. He's saying, don't miss this. Don't scoff at this. Don't wonder if this is true and don't wander away and perish. This is not just some nice thing to think about. This is not just an option for you. This is it. This is the truth. Don't scoff at it. Don't deny it. Don't question it. This is it. And church, I think there's a, there's a word for us in that as well. Well, certainly we shouldn't scoff at the gospel. We shouldn't scoff about the truth of Jesus Christ. We shouldn't wonder about it. We shouldn't think, oh, this is, a, this is an interesting option in all the options that we have out there. This is the truth. We should embrace it. We should live it. More than that, when we are confronted in any way, shape, or form with the truth that comes from God's word, when it hits our hearts and it comes into our lives, we should embrace it and listen to it, acknowledge it, be cut to the heart by it. And we don't just say this is God's word and it's, it's a nice option. We look at this and we say this is the truth. And as much as I hate it, as much as it's going to change my life, as much as it's going to change what I do tomorrow morning, as much as it's going to change my relationships, it's the truth and I have to believe it. I have to embody it. I have to change my life because of it. And when the truth of God's word comes into our lives, we don't simply scoff at it or dismiss it or think that it's just an option comparable with all other thoughts and options that are out there. This is it. This is primary. This is the truth. This is God's word. And we can quickly scoff at it, church. Even today, we can scoff at it and say, I don't really want to do that. Or that's going to change too much of me. Giving all that I have to the poor? Really? Really? Controlling my sexual urges? Really? Walking in faith? Really? I'm a more of a planner? We shouldn't dismiss the word of God in our lives, the truth of God in our lives. All right, let's keep moving. Acts 13, 42 through 45. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath day. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. So there's this, there's this group of people that says, come back, we want to know more. We want to hear more. Well, that day comes, and on the next Sabbath, the, the whole city is gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And the Jews saw the crowds, and they were filled with jealousy. They were filled with jealousy. 
And they began to contradict what Paul was saying. They began to argue with him. And they began to undo the truth that he was saying. And they heaped abuse on him. They called him names. They may have pushed him around. They heaped abuse on him. Now here we go again, right? We see things starting to heat up for Paul and Barnabas. In the first part of Acts 13, the resistance to the gospel came from a magician, a sorcerer, someone outside the faith who was weaving lies into the, the proconsul's head. Do you remember that? There was this resistance to the gospel, and Paul had to stand down the magician and say, no, this is true. And the proconsul came to faith. Well, here we see the resistance is not from something outside of the people of God, but it actually comes from within the people of God. The people that should have listened and heard and believed and and tied it all together and moved forward with Jesus are actually the ones that that don't believe. They, They cause resistance to the gospel for Paul and Barnabas. They argue with them and they contradict them and they heap abuse on them. Church, I think there's a word for us in this. There's a word for us in this. This idea, this this competition, right? We see competition present here. And that competition breeds jealousy. And that jealousy breeds anger and sin. Where these Jewish leaders, in their jealousy, because they didn't get to have the influence they wanted, because they weren't being followed, or they weren't as popular or as influential as Paul, they act out in their jealousy. I think there's a word for us in there. Have you ever been jealous? I'd like to meet the one person who's never felt jealousy. Have you ever been jealous? Have you ever, have you ever been so jealous that you act out in anger? Have you, have you ever been so jealous that you go behind people's backs and say bad things about them? Have you ever been so jealous that you, you reject someone or you treat them different or you spread lies about them or you backstab them? My guess in a room like this, a room this size with this many people, that I'm not the only one that's done that kind of stuff. Because <laughs> as much as I hate to admit it, I have felt that. I have felt that jealousy. I have felt that anger. I have felt that inappropriate and an ugly competition, right? As sad as it is, I can relate to the Jewish leaders here in this story. I can relate to it in a couple ways. First, I can relate to it as a pastor. Because believe it or not, in the American church, and even in this community, this kind of thing happens. Where church leaders work to spread lies and go behind people's backs to try to steer people away from worshiping in certain places. Or they go behind a church planter's back and they go to places where that church, could, that church planter could go and they say, don't let, him, don't let him or her plant their church here. That happens in this community, the town of Wheaton and Glen Ellen. There's this jealousy and this competition that's present even within the church and its leaders. And I ask myself, why? Why isn't it like the kind of 
beautiful moment of everybody's laying on hands and sending people out and there's this togetherness and we're not building an organization. We're an organism that's living and breathing and moving and it's because of sin. Because believe it or not, pastors like me and church leaders are sinners (laughs) and they get jealous thoughts in their mind and they get competitive with other people and they act out in their sinfulness and they do gross and ugly things. That's just the truth. So I can hear this and I I can relate to this on a, a church level, on a pastoral level, but I can certainly relate to this on a personal level as well. And I think many of you can. Because when I ask myself, why does this happen in the church? There's this Well, there's sinful leaders, but it's also because we live, this church lives in and swims in and is a part of a culture that is incredibly competitive. And it breeds jealousy and anger and entitlement and pride. All of us swim in a community and are part of a community that is highly competitive I know that many of you feel this this competitiveness in our community on a daily basis. On a daily basis. And I know that for some of you, it is overwhelming, even debilitating. You feel this competition in your workplace to succeed and to win at all costs. And you feel this competition in your personal relationships, even sometimes with your spouse. This competitiveness And you feel it in the recreational activities that you're a part of. Yourself and the recreational and sports that your kids play. You feel this competition. And you feel this this competition and the things that it breeds when you go on social media. And you grow jealous, even angry. You feel it and you see it in your parenting. When you're talking with somebody else about your kids, you feel this competition, right, welling up inside you that my kids don't measure up and why do they and what's going on. It's all, it's like woven into everything that we do. We compete and we fight and we scratch and we claw for anything that we can get. And often our competitiveness breeds jealousy and anger and resentment and pride and entitlement. And we act out like these Jewish leaders. Or we don't, and it just rots away at our hearts. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that all competition is bad. (laughs) I'm certainly not saying that we should all just get together and sing Kumbaya and hang out. I would die from that. (laughs) I love competition. I love competition. I love to be a part of competition. I love to watch competition. I love to see competition. I love to see stories of people raising up and working hard and being diligent. And I'm not saying that all that we compete for and all that we strive for is bad. That's not what I'm saying. But I think you know, when you know, you know, You know when that competition has gone to a place that is not good, that's sinful, that's breeding jealousy and entitlement and pride and wanting to tear somebody to bits. 
And certainly that's not what we want to do. That's not the kind of competition we want to be a part of. We don't want to be jealous like that. The truth is, I believe, and maybe I'm just too lofty in my thoughts, but I really believe that Christians can actually lead the way in being diligent and hardworking and appropriately aggressive and assertive and striving to win while holding up being merciful and gentle and loving and kind. I believe that Christians can actually be an example of living in that tension in a beautiful way. Because in competition, there are amazing ways to show how good God is, how powerful he is, and to give him honor and glory. And I I believe that Christians can lead the way in this in our community. That Christians in the workplace can show that it isn't win at all costs. As much as I want to win, it's not win at all costs. I'm going to do this right I'm going to speak well of our competition. I'm going to honor God in this. And we can do it in the classroom. We've got a ton of Wheaton College students here. I went to Wheaton College. Two degrees from Wheaton College and currently pursuing a third degree from Wheaton College. It's competitive. And it can breed jealousy. And there's many of you in the classroom right now who who feel that. I believe that you can lead the way And still working hard and striving to be the best in your class without destroying someone in your wake. I believe that we can do it on the athletic field and in our recreational opportunities as well. And in our parenting, we can have a sense of honesty and vulnerability about where we're at, what we're not doing well, and why our kids act the way that they do. Instead of competing with each other and getting jealous of one another. I believe that Christians can show that our competition in the way that we strive and are diligent does not define us. But who we are in Christ is what defines us. That we are His. And He is full of goodness and grace and mercy. And that's the kind of people that we want to be. We can exhibit who Christ is without the, the petty gossip and the jealousy And simply put, the drama that goes on with all of this in our community. All right, let's continue on. Acts 13, 46 through 48. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of God and all who were appointed to eternal life believed. So Paul and Barnabas, they they quote here Isaiah 49 verse 6 and they basically say, fine, if you don't want to believe it, we're not going to, we're not stopping with you. We're going on to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are honored and, and they're, they're excited and they, they believe. They come to faith in Christ. They honor the word of the Lord and many believe. All right, Luke goes on to close this section by saying, The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas 
and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them, and they went on to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So the good news about Jesus spreads throughout the whole region. God honored the hard work of Paul and his companions to get up to that city, traveling on that rough road. He uses that hub of that city and it spreads throughout the region. God honors their hard work, but the Jewish people, they, they dig their feet in, right? They, they dig their heels in even more. And they throw them out of the city. But what do Paul and Barnabas do and the companions that are with them? They're filled with joy. They shake the dust and they're filled with joy and filled with the Holy Spirit. All right, so how do we land the plane this morning? How do we, how do we close things up this morning? We've covered a lot of ground, right? Made a lot of applications in 42 verses of text this morning. There's one thing that I want to point out as we close. I think it's really beautiful about this passage, really powerful in this narrative. And that's the working of God. God's, God's sovereignty, God's plans, God's wisdom, just the, the work of God that's woven throughout this whole story. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, we see God certainly working in the life of Paul and Barnabas. He's opened the door for them to go. He sent them out. They go in the Holy Spirit. He's filled with the Holy Spirit as he preaches. They're filled with the Holy Spirit as they go. And God is working through this. People come to faith because of what Paul and Barnabas have done. God moves these Gentile believers as they hear the word of God to be saved. Certainly we see it there. But we also see it, this sovereignty of God and this power of God working, we see it in the words that Paul preaches. We see it in the words that he says, that God was working from the very beginning through the Israelites to bring the Messiah to the world. We see his sovereignty and his work through all the covenants with his people, through the, through the reign of King David and, and Jesus being born of his line. And in that church, I want us to be encouraged that God is at work. And God is at work in the specific instance of Paul and Barnabas. And God is at work in the specific instance of your life. But more than that, God is working. God is at work. God holds our salvation in his hands. God holds our salvation in his hands. We don't save our selves. We don't work for our salvation. God does that work. God has mapped it out for us and shown us really clearly where salvation is found, and that's in Christ Jesus. Church, we're called to be faithful. We're called to hear the truth of the good news of the gospel, and we're called to believe it, to know and believe that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. And then we're called to be faithful with whatever he puts in front of us, like Paul and Barnabas. To go where he calls us to go and to do what he tells us to do. We live a life that isn't this life of, of striving for our own good or our, our own needs. We aren't striving to win at all costs or to be excellent or to be perfect. 
We're called to listen to the Holy Spirit and do our part as we follow God in our daily lives. One of my favorite verses in Scripture comes from 2 Corinthians. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, and he says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. Be encouraged by that this morning. We're called to be faithful. Some of us will plant. Some of us will water. We're called to be faithful, church. Let me pray. Father God, we love you. Thank you for your word this morning. I pray that we will honor and glorify you and be faithful, resting in the knowledge that you are the one that saves us. You are the one that holds us. You are the one that cares for us, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.